0: Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Good news and bad news on the scientific front in the fight against COVID. Good news for a vaccine, but the bad news is does science tell us what to do to fight COVID-19? Plus, Margaret McMillan on her new book, War How Conflict Shaped Us. Let's get to it. I won, you know. I won. I'm not I'm not conceding. I won't concede. The only thing I will concede is that it's Monday. Over the course of the weekend, were you uh, following the Trump follies. As he tweeted on, I believe it was Sunday, he won in the eyes of the media. And everybody grasped onto that, grabbed onto it. Oh, <laughs> Trump has conceded! It's all over! And then Trump right back on Twitter, like, I concede nothing! The only thing I will concede to you today is that it's going to be a dark winter, but a bright spring. I feel hope on this Monday, and I hope you do too. Because, sure, in places in this province, there are little white flakes falling from the sky after a weekend of a windstorm. The winter is upon us but we got some good news we got some good news on the vaccine today and all of this means that it is time now ladies and gentlemen please if you would turn in our big book of the pandemic chapter second wave verse 3 science giveth and science taketh away this monday it giveth hope and that specifically that hope is Another one of several experimental COVID-19 vaccines that Canada has procured millions of doses of is showing such promise in preliminary trials. Moderna says its vaccine candidate appears to be 94.5% effective. This comes a week after Pfizer said that its vaccine candidate is 90% effective. And Moderna is like, Pfizer, suck on this! 94. percent Point five percent. Trump. Speaking of which, it all seems to be somewhat of a of a bit of a a roulette game, you know. In Canada, oh, we we've we've got the Moderna. We've I'm sorry, Moderna, Pfizer. Yes, three hundred million on Pfizer. So we're all good on that. The question is, do either one of these vaccines actually go the final mile to get? approval, and then into the pipeline, and then into our veins, and away we go. Here is Moderna president, Dr. Stephen Hoag. It's a really important milestone in the fight against the pandemic, uh, because it demonstrates that our vaccine, mRNA-1273, is able to prevent COVID-19 disease, including severe disease in people who've received it. That is some good news. We've got some steps to go. So there is an example of how science giveth. And yet, science also taketh away. Because as we look on the horizon, and into next spring, and hope, here and now the story is not so good. Because science tells us that the numbers in the past 24 hours in Ontario, fourteen hundred. 1,487 new COVID cases, 10 more deaths, 33,000 tests, 16,000 pending. And here's the hospitalization number, which is worrying, up by 21. Those ICU numbers up again. We are now at 125. A reminder, 150 is our threshold. Anything above that, we have to throttle back scheduled surgeries. And ventilators up by three. Those lagging indicators... Science tells us that when you have spiking case numbers, that doesn't immediately translate into a load in the hospital, an extra burden on the healthcare system. That comes two weeks later. And then two weeks later after that, things get very dire. So that's what science tells us. also tells us that Toronto has 508 cases, Peel 392, York 170, and whoa, 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 Ottawa. Ottawa's at 51. What's going on in the nation's capital? Man, they've really ratcheted things down. Ottawa was spiking very, very seriously. And now things are much better. Is it possible that... Even at the best of times, even in pre-pandemic times, there's nothing to do in Ottawa. So just people there are just used to that. Is, that. is that why? So science says that the virus is spiking here in Ontario. And here's also where science taketh away. Because I can give you that set of numbers. I can give you stats all day long. But empirical science does not dictate human reaction. The same set of data can be interpreted in different ways. And so, while the science may be infallible, while numbers and facts are fixed, our reaction to them is not. For example, we have the Greek chorus, as I talk about. This uh, These are the doctors who are not on the health table, not advising the Ford government or on the... National table with uh Teresa Tam, but rather are the commentators that you hear. The Bogoshes, the Furnesses, the Warners. And a group of infectious disease specialists and doctors are now pushing both the feds and the provinces to bring in a much more aggressive strategy to get cases down. Here is Dr. Andrew Morris, who is a member of the Greek chorus who is a local infectious disease physician.
1: With a COVID zero strategy, you take some additional pain up front by prolonging restrictions, but the goal is that you don't anticipate ever having to face another wave because after this wave, this is the last wave. After that, your goal is constantly keeping the level of disease at a very, very low level and as soon as it appears, you stamp it out and any efforts to stamp it out when it's at a low level is not met with any kind of prolonged pain because it's not required. The problem we have now is the level is so high that it is going to be prolonged.
0: The point being that we have to do something. We have to do it soon. We have to put in some severe restrictions. You heard this talk about is maybe a circuit breaker. Andrew Horvath has been talking about it that way. You know, I'm just so confused by all the messaging. I I think we just mash it all together and we get a red level circuit breaker with a modified stage two output. And then we just there we go. Now that makes as much sense to me as anything else I've heard. So different scientists have different interpretations. The scientists in the Greek chorus, outside of those who are actually advising the government, say, we need something serious right now. Do it now. Do it. Come on, Dougie. Do it. Doug Ford says, hey, listen, I got here, a raft here. of scientists of my own. Here's what Doug Ford said about that. When when it was pushed again saying, look, here's another organization, here's another member of a Greek chorus saying, you need to lock things down. Here's what Doug Ford said.
1: Let me be very clear. Everything is on the table. I've been decisive from day one, and I'm going to continue being decisive. When I get the green light and Dr. Williams says the tables come back and they, need it, they want to lock down, I will lock down quicker than you can blink your eyes.
0: Blink. Still blinking. I have been decisive, says the Premier.
1: Quicker than you can blink your eyes.
0: Blink? I'm over here blinking. I'm doing the SOS with the blinking, like I'm a hostage. Blink, 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 blink.
1: blink. you got to be kidding me.
0: Blink, 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 blink. Because, you know, you're looking at those numbers and the percent positivity, and the fact that, you know, when, when asked... Dr. Williams, who was advising the premier, when asked, like, okay, well, you know, what level, what what science do we need to be able to get us to a lockdown, a severe restriction? And the good doctor's answer was, well, that is a good question.
1: I don't understand that.
0: (laughs) Blink, 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 blink.
1: Quicker than you can
0: blink your eyes. So different scientists have different interpretations. Here's something that's developing today as well, is that at local public health tables, there's outrage that we don't get to know, we don't get to know what local public health is telling that central command table, that raft of doctors. So there's no transparency here. So there's all this information going around from doctors up to bigger doctors, and I don't mean in physical size, just in terms of rank. I'm sorry, I outrank you. And it all heads up there to Dr. Williams, and then he whispers in Doug's ear, and Doug says, I only do what the doc says. And so science giveth, and science Taketh away. Because it gives us the information that we need, but it doesn't give us a path on how to deal with it. And when we have a schism, as we do clearly in this province, between doctors who are verbal warfare now, openly. And the takeaway for for all of us, the rest of us in the, pub, in the public is, I'm sorry, what color is my circuit breaker? Blink, 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 blink. Science giveth, and science taketh away. Here endeth the lesson. A reason to hope today on this Monday, news of another vaccine candidate with some very encouraging results. Moderna saying that its uh, version of the vaccine has 94.5% effectiveness. And previously before we heard about the uh, Pfizer vaccine candidate last week, which is in the 90% range, the experts were thinking, you know, if we get 50-50, we're good. So those are some pretty good numbers. And as a result of that, the stock market has shot up once again, strongly back up again today. The market, uh, mirroring what happened a week ago after the Pfizer news, this Moderna news, uh, I'm putting us a little juice into the market. And it's always so interesting in, in these cases to f- look at what is gaining and what is losing. For example, last week, the things that lost uh, included Peloton. Uh, and also Zoom. Now, both of those stocks gained some back later in the week, but that was investors basically saying, well, I'm not going to have to worry about, you know, being exposed with my tubing on the air anymore after we get a vaccine. I won't have to worry about that. Other stocks that went up, well, travel-related stocks, especially cruise lines, all kinds of things like that. Investors is already now looking into mid-point 2021 for some kind of return of travel. And I'm so excited about this. I just, I can't help myself. You know, it's like a thing, it's whatever it is that you're deprived of. The, the thing that you cannot do is the thing you want to do more than anything else. And to help me talk about travel. I'm pleased to welcome back to the program our travel expert, influencer, traveler, Jennifer Weatherhead, Harrington, pardon me, as I blew your name after that big uh, (laughs) intro, that big wind-up, and then I just completely shanked it. My apologies. That's
2: okay. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I I love your Instagram, Jen. I do. uh, You go a lot of different places, and what I really noticed about your Instagram, of course, in the last eight months, is you're doing a lot of travel in Ontario, just like the rest of us.
2: I know I have. I think I've been seeing a lot more of Ontario than I ever thought I would be, but I've had the time to do it, so why not?
0: When we start looking to uh, uh, next year and we start thinking about what travel is going to be like, uh, do you think you'll be an early adopter?
2: I think I will be. I think it sounds a lot more promising. I think you know the past couple of times that we've chatted, it didn't sound like it was that promising. There were all the four- to five-year expectations for travel to bounce back but i do think that we're going to see a bigger uptick than, than maybe we thought and that we would be able to maybe start traveling a bit sooner these new vaccines are so promising as the start, stock market has shown but i think also the fact that booking companies and airlines and hotels are offering much more flexible cancellation policies gives people the encouragement to book sort of well in advance and feel a bit more comfortable about knowing that they can make
0: changes if they need to. And, you know, I've been thinking about what will stay once the vaccine cuts here and the pandemic goes away, like what changes in our lives what things that have happened to us are we going to, going to keep and say, these are good things. And I think the public going forward is going to say flexible rebooking is just something we demand from now on. You can't go back.
2: I think so too. I totally agree on that. And I think, you know, how many horror stories have you heard in the past of, you know, someone being kind of run over by some kind of travel mishap, they have to cancel their flight and they're out all that money. I think we're kind of going to see hopefully the end of that, which would be so promising for the traveler. And I think it'll just make you feel so much more comfortable about getting on that plane when you do first start going out again. I think, Most of this is going to be making the traveler feel comfortable, and that's what airlines, hotels, tour companies, governments all kind of need to work together on making that happen.
0: And hopefully that extends to making, you know, going to the airport and the actual process of traveling a little less dehumanizing. There's a lot of talk about making the entire airport experience completely touchless. And here's something that I, I read, and I hadn't realized this because I haven't been on a flight since the beginning of the pandemic. That's something that they do now, if you were to fly now, is no more when the plane pulls up to the gate, does everybody jump up and jostle and get their stuff out all at once and chaos. Instead, it's much more organized. They don't want people doing that, obviously. So you have to actually exit per row. I hope they keep that, Jen.
2: I do too, because that has to be one of the biggest pet peeves that I would have before the pandemic was when everyone would do that. And it just, it bottles everything up and makes it harder to get off. So the way it was intended was for everyone to go row by row and it's very orderly and civilized. So hopefully that will stay as well. I think, you know, people are going to be a lot more aware of personal space Uh, traveling in the future, so I think that that might also kind of ease some of that stress that comes with traveling, you know, when airports are super busy and everyone's kind of pushing and shoving around. I think hopefully we won't see that quite as much going forward as well. Um, So I think there are some really good positives that are going to come out of this.
0: The one other one I think about is is mass travel. I I went to Cancun just before uh, this all broke. I was there in February I was there over the family day weekend, and this thing was cheek to jowl. Like you couldn't get a, you know, you couldn't get a place to sit down. It was just, I mean, this thing was rammed in there. And I don't, I just don't think that consumers are going to expect that or accept, pardon me, accept that for at least another two years.
2: I agree. I think we are probably looking at. Travel will come back maybe a little bit faster than we first anticipated, but it's definitely going to look a lot different than what we had before the pandemic. So those kinds of things where people just aren't going to be settling, to be crammed into a room or into a really crowded space. I went to a museum recently, and I have to say I actually enjoyed it. I had to wait in line a little bit, but I didn't have anyone breathing over my shoulder while I was trying to read the information about the piece of art or someone trying to get in front of me to take a picture. So I think there will be some things that will definitely be different for us, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, And I think that destinations, especially those really popular ones like Cancun, Venice, um, all of the ones that kind of have been talking about over-tourism, they have to rethink how they're going to bring people back in a safe way that's not just safe for people, but will be safer and better for their destination in an over-tourism sense too.
0: In, in the meantime, we still got to get through this winter. Uh, I expect uh, I expect uh, many more photos on your Instagram account of you <laughs> doing wintry things in Ontario.
2: I but might ski. The... You never you, know, uh, I might ski. <laughs> are you going to
0: take that off? You, you think you'll take it up?
2: I think I'm going to. Why not? All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that, that's going to be a challenge, too, because, you know, things like, you know, just being able to get equipment and being able to get on the hill. Like your blue, for example, is not going to have any walk-ups. You can't just decide some Tuesday, I'm just going to go. You, can't just walk, you have to book in advance. You have to be much more organized.
2: Yeah, but again, I think that will also be a positive thing for travelers in the future to be more organized and to take a little bit more responsibility on their end of making sure that they have all their ducks in a row and, and that they know what they're getting into. So I think it does take a bit more effort on our end these days to get out there. But the fact that we haven't been able to get out very much makes it all the more enjoyable when we do Um, And I think we can appreciate it a little bit more. So, yeah, you you do definitely need to plan well in advance these days when you are going to make a trip.
0: The other thing I see down the road, not too far from here, is when we do get a vaccine, is that you're going to have to have you know, maybe like a some kind of certificate that says you've had the vaccine. Much like, you know, to be able to travel to a number of countries in the world, you might actually have to have some kind of piece of paper that says, well, you've got an inoculation against yellow fever or whatever it might be in that local area. You're probably going to have to have some kind of document that's going to be, you know, entitle you to travel.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, that's something we'll have to wait and see how that works and also how they're going to incorporate the the testing, the rapid COVID testing um, on arrival as well. So I'll be interested to see what we'll be expected to do as travelers. Some countries now you still have to, that are open to travelers and to Canadians in particular, you have to show a certificate now saying that you've had a COVID test, you know, within three days before arriving. Or some destinations will have you do a test while you're there. And it's a rapid test. And within 18 to 24 hours, you get your results. So, It will be interesting to see how countries kind of develop this, but I wouldn't rule that out. I think that that would possibly be a a solution to make things easier in airports as well.
0: One of the things that they're trying to do in the maritime bubble is travel agents there are trying to set up some kind of bubble in a resort at Cuba. So you could fly from the maritime bubble to Cuba to go to a resort, which is also an extension of your bubble. Do you, you, th- you see something like that for Ontario? Obviously, we don't have the maritime bubble, but that same kind of idea that, okay, you get it all get your tests here, and then you go down to some resort, but nobody else can get into the resort other than the people that come from this one area that has al- already had their tests.
2: Yeah, I can definitely see that happening as well. I think that is part of what a travel agent or travel tour company or guide would be really helpful for organizing that on the other end of the destination that you're going to. But I also know a lot of people who are kind of semi doing that already. They want to go on a trip with some family members who are maybe outside of their bubble right now, but they end up wanting to travel somewhere. So they all kind of get tested and expand that bubble a little bit. So I think you're going to keep seeing that happening and that people are going to be taking those extra precautions and steps. And I think that that will probably be one of those travel trends for 2021 that we'll be talking about, the travel bubble from one spot to another.
0: Yeah, it'll all be this sort of, you know, weird kind of Tinder experience as to whether or not you want to swipe right on anybody else's bubble. Do I want to join your bubble? I don't know. I don't
2: know. know. You you really have to like these people. If you're in the bubble and you're going to travel in the bubble, you really have to think about who you're traveling with even more than you did before.
0: Because once they're in the bubble, it's hard to get them back out.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Jennifer Weatherhead, Harrington, travel expert, blogger, influencer. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. The Alec Manassian trial continues in Toronto virtually, and we have reporters uh, watching what's going on. Our Catherine McDonald is watching watching it on our TV side, and she'll have a story tonight on Global News on television and on our radio side. We're, we're, we're like the private sector, CBC. We've got a cast of millions. We just send thousands of people to cover anything. That's not true. It's not true. Dave Woodard is covering the trial for us here for uh, Global News Radio and joins me. Hey, Dave.
1: Hey, Alan. Glad that your people could connect with my people.
0: Well, sure. We, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, today it just, uh, I'm just so impacted by what's happened on the stand today. Uh, Alec Manassian's dad is on. Uh, the stand, and, you know, you, obviously, first and foremost, we have to keep in our minds the, the families of the victims and, you know, the, the kind of trauma that they've gone through and those that were injured and the trauma that they've gone through, but for for Mr. Manassian to have to come and, and testify at his own son's trial and, and to talk about how he was absolutely blindsided by this, can you tell me a little bit about what Mr. Manassian told the court
1: Yes, of course. So, you know, uh, Boris Potensky, who's the lawyer for Alec Manassian, uh, you know, asked him to go through the day. What was Alec's state of mind in the morning? Um, And uh, Vic Manassian, Alec's father, was saying how, you know, Alec was actually in a great mood, that he was excited because now that school was done for him, that he'd be able to. Uh, see more of his friends and family. Um, And Alec asked him, you know, to drop him off at uh, Chapters at uh, in Indigo, and Manassian's dad, Vic, thought nothing of it. He said, yep, no problem, I can drop you off, and and thought nothing of it whatsoever. Um, He didn't find out anything until much later in the day. He found out uh, he was pulled over by a Toronto police officer initially, saying that there had been an accident involving someone from his household in a rented vehicle. He was very confused by this, spoke with his wife about it, um, and then was taken to a Toronto police station. Um, At that point, uh, he still wasn't aware of what was going on. He said he doesn't think that he was told at all about, you know, his son's actions. Um, But when um, the video of Alec Manassian being arrested by a Toronto police officer went viral, that was the first time he saw anything like that.
0: All of this is part of a controversial defense um, that says that Alec Manassian is not criminally responsible. And Can you give me a sense of what the defense said at the outset uh, about the fact that Mr. Manassian is on the autism spectrum?
1: Right. So there were things, uh, first of all, Boris Potensky said exactly, exactly that. He said uh, that they would be trying this on the autism spectrum disorder kind of as a defense. And what Potensky is saying is not that people with ASD are psychotic. Most people with ASD are not violent either. Um, but in this case, what it does mean is that he... Uh, is that his client, Alec Manassian, only has a fundamental uh, or intellectual knowledge of what wrongful means. So he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong in a, in a practical sense, only in an intellectual one. So it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to try to prove it. There were things that uh, Manassian's father and Betensky were going through later on in the morning, uh, some of the notes Uh, that were found on Alec Manassian's computer uh, talking about um, uh, law and order. And while um, Vic Manassian said his son didn't really have much of an interest in law and order or crime or anything like that, because there were things on the computer that were found uh, to have to deal with things like murder charges, um, even the Holocaust. Um, they, they were going through that and saying, well, this doesn't appear to be something my son would have written on his own, um, not necessarily because uh, of uh, the fact that um, he wasn't intellectually capable of doing it. But looking at the way that it was written, the, the way that it was set out, it didn't seem that he knew um, the exact um, the words for it, and he was going, for, uh, Alec, that, that is, uh, was going for something else.
0: Dave, we'll have to leave it there. The um, case or the trial uh, resumes, at, is it 1.15 this afternoon?
1: One fifteen. that's right.
0: All right, stay with us here on Global News Radio and Dave's reporting throughout the rest of the afternoon. Dave, I appreciate that update. Thank you. Are we fated to be a warlike people? Is humanity fated to have war as part of his experience? We profess to love peace. No politician in the right mind would stand up and say, I'm for war! And yet war still happens. Why? These are some of the topics that author and historian Margaret McMillan, Mark Millen, pardon me, tackles in her new book, War, How Conflict Has Shaped Us. McMillan is a professor at the University of Toronto and also at Oxford, and is the best selling author of Paris 1919. She joined me recently on Focus Ontario. Welcome to Focus Ontario. Thank you very much. Do we as Canadians understand the role that war played in creating a modern Canada?
3: I think a lot of us do, and we have days like November the 11th where we remember those who came and who who fought and the ways in which war has affected our country. But I think we've also got used to the idea that we live in a very peaceful world. Um, We've been a very fortunate country since 1945. Although our soldiers have fought abroad, we haven't experienced really the shock of war on a large scale. And I think we need to remember that war is still going on. It's been estimated that there have been wars somewhere in the world ever since 1945 every year. And so I think our attitude towards war is is mixed. We understand it. We know that it shaped our country, but perhaps we tend to hope that it's gone away somehow.
0: The pandemic is often compared to wartime. Much of the language we hear is the same. And I wonder what you make of that.
3: The language does sound the same. And I think there are features that are the same. There's the same big challenge to society. There's the fact that, like, wars pandemics cross borders they don't respect borders at all and there's the same need to mobilize the resources of society to try and deal with it but of course it's not the same as war and and the language is useful as as a sort of metaphor but i think war is something very different war is about violence war is using organized violence to get other people to do what you want whether it's to defend yourself or, or to subjugate them And so the pandemic is and isn't like war, I think. And we need to always remember the element of violence in war.
1: As we look
0: at what's happening south of the border, Abraham Lincoln famously said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. When you look at the political divisions in the United States and you look at it from uh, a lens of history, do you see history repeating itself?
3: I like to think history never repeats itself exactly, but it gives us warnings, doesn't it? It it warns us that when you get into certain situations, when societies become polarized, when you begin to get people organizing themselves into armed groups, then you should be careful. Then you really need to watch out. And I think there are some worrying signs in the United States. The the fact that people on different sides of politics won't talk to each other or accuse each other of of all sorts of crimes will not treat each other as, as reasonable people who happen want slightly different things, but both love their country. And I do find alarming the increase of of people owning weapons, and it's always been high in the United States, but it's much higher today, and the appearance of people who carry weapons, who organize themselves as if they're in some sort of armed force and, and wear uniforms. So I find it worrying. I mean, I think the United States has a long way to go before it ends up in a civil war like it once did. But I think there are some worrying signs, which we should all be concerned about, of course, Americans most of all.
0: You write in your book that wars often start for a number of different reasons, and sometimes they often start by mistake. And even though we don't want a war, we think of ourselves as peaceful, wars still happen.
3: Mistakes play a big part in history, I think. I mean, it's a bit, I suppose, the analogy I always think of is something like a forest fire. I mean, you get a dry summer, you get a lot of underbrush, which perhaps hasn't been cleared away, and someone throws a lighted cigarette out of a car or someone lets a campfire burn and doesn't put it out properly. And I think wars can be like that. You can get a number of factors which make war more likely, and then something triggers it off. And sometimes I really do think it can be accident. And the First World War, I've often thought, might not have started if the Archduke's driver hadn't taken the wrong turning in Sarajevo, and the Archduke was therefore assassinated. So we don't know really, I think enough about how wars start, but sometimes it is just accident. And it worries me that there are places around the world at the moment where you have great power interests, you have volatile situations, and things can blow up very quickly. It took Europe five weeks in 1914 to go from a long period of peace and prosperity into an all-out war. And so I think we just need to be wary of that.
0: When you look at what's happening with China and the increasing tensions between the Western world, especially in the United States and China, what do you see there?
3: I see that sort of potential for an accident to happen. I mean, I don't think either side wants a war, but on the other hand, both are heavily armed and the United States is the biggest military power in the world. But China has been spending increasing amounts on its military since about 2002 and it is developing all sorts of capacities that it wouldn't have had 10 years ago, and you have competition in the South China Sea, and you have armed forces from each country quite close to each other. You know, you, you have naval ships, you have planes, and I can see the possibility of an accident. I mean, there have been a couple of occasions when an American and a Chinese naval ship have almost bumped. And when that happens, what does public opinion then do, and what do the leaders do? So, I can say, you, know, you you can say that people don't want war, and I think probably most people don't, but sometimes we get into situations where it's difficult for leaders to back down or they feel they have to, for reasons of prestige or honor or whatever, be tough. And so, yes, I do worry about the situation between the United States and China. Margaret, is war inevitable? I very much hope not, and I don't even want to think it's inevitable because once we think something is inevitable, we get that much closer to accepting it we cross a psychological barrier. And I think we've had long periods in history where people have made peace, where they've lived comfortably with each other, where they've managed to settle their disputes peacefully. And we need to remember that as well. I think my message in the book is that we shouldn't write war off. We shouldn't say we've moved so far, we've become so advanced that we'll never fight again. War is something that has marked pretty much the whole of human history. As we know, there's still wars going on in the world today and, and new ones perhaps likely to break out. And so I think we just need to be wary. Um, there are lots of ways of fighting against war: the disarmament, arms agreements, uh, peace movements. We, we know that there are ways of, of opposing war. Um, d- diplomacy, countries dealing with each other. So I think we have to keep an eye on that as well. But we shouldn't be foolishly optimistic.
0: Without glorifying war in any way, you point out the societal gains that we have because of war. It it seems such a controversial thing to point out. I'm wondering what some of them are to you.
3: Some of the things that have changed as a result of war are changes in society, things that we would think are for the better. The two world wars in a number of countries brought changes in the position of the lower classes, the working classes, and of women. Now, women participated in war, they helped to support war efforts, and I think as a result, it was no longer possible to deny them political rights and, and other sorts of rights. So I think changes in society, um, the two world wars also brought about greater equality in a lot of societies because the poor were treated better, they were fed better, they were paid better, those in, in working-class in working jobs were paid better, and the rich were taxed heavier. And so, if you think equality in society is a good thing, or greater equality, which I do, then wars can bring that. And wars can also bring advances in science and technology. In a war, it becomes possible to spend money on things that you would think are too expensive in peacetime. And that is in no way to defend wars. I mean, we we can make these sorts of changes without war, but war does sometimes bring unintended benefits, and society benefits in peacetime from those.
0: If the history of warfare up until the mid part of the 20th century is a march of bigger armies bigger battles where are we now in terms of war and what is the future of warfare
3: i think we're moving in two directions with the future of war and one is still that 20th century model of huge numbers of people fighting that the more people you can get more boots on the ground, the more likely you are to be able to win. And we still see some of those sorts of wars in in different parts of the world. Um, The war between Iran and Iraq in the 1980s was very much a mass war. And some of the wars that are going on in places like Afghanistan or in the Great Lakes region of Africa still rely on large numbers of people with weapons. But we see war moving in another direction in a way that's rather reminiscent of the 18th century, where you had very small professional armies, who did the fighting and the rest of society wasn't expected to contribute in the same way. And what we're seeing now is, is of course, new types of weapons that are making it unnecessary to have large numbers of people in uniform. We're seeing weapons that guide themselves, weapons that direct themselves. We probably are about to see naval ships that don't actually have any crews, airplanes that don't have crews. And so I think we're seeing war developing in, in two different ways. One very reminiscent of the 20th century, sort of large numbers of people engaged, and the other, very much the work of a very few people because the weapons mean that you don't need a lot of people.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Margaret McMillan, the new book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Thank you so much for joining us on Focus Ontario.
3: Thank you very much, it was a pleasure.
0: Margaret McMillan and her new book, As I talked about there, War, How Conflict Has Shaped Us. I'm reading it right now, and it is a remarkable read, a tour de force, just looking at the history of warfare and the various different aspects of it and different ways to think about it as well. Margaret McMillan, one of my favorite authors. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays beginning at noon.